Well, welcome everyone to Drive to Win. I'm Justin Bell, your host, and I'm here live from the Win in Las Vegas. Uh, it's actually a week off in the world of motorsport. Well, a week off in the world of Formula One. Uh, obviously, after the Canadian race last two weeks ago, they are getting ready for Austria this coming weekend. But a week off means that for the teams, they get busy with all the upgrades and all the evolution development of the cars. But for the drivers, according to their social media, it looks like they just go and have a really good time. All that money, they're so young. That's exactly what I'd be doing. Well, we have a great guest on today's show. He is one of my oldest mates. Uh, we raced together as teammates in Fortsal Lotus at the end of the 80s. Uh, David Brabham, son of three-time world champion, Australian Formula One driver, Jack Brabham. David will be joining us. Uh, he raced in Formula One. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment. Anyway, a very cool guy with an eye on what goes on in world motorsports. So I'm very pleased to have him here. Now, obviously, with a week off, uh, attention goes to other kind of gossip in the world of motorsport. And that is really where the win is factoring in. As you know, we are going to be gearing up for the Heineken Silver Grand Prix of Las Vegas in November. Well, the weekend before that is the Concours at the win, which is very much establishing itself as one of the must-do car concours on the international calendar. And what makes it that is really a unique blend of the hospitality that the wing can bring to an event that is traditionally quite staid and traditional, but their spin on it is bringing in some of the most iconic cars from history, the movie cars that made stars famous. They have some of the latest offerings from the electric field, and of course, also the world of supercars, hypercars, bringing in some of the, not just the cars, but also some of the owners who span every type of person you can imagine, but the common denominator, they have millions to spend on these mouth-watering works of performance art. And it'll all be here, out there on the fairway, right behind me at the Wynn here in Las Vegas. And if you want to check it out and try and be a part of it, then just go to uh, it's www.lasvegasconcourse.com uh, and check it out. They've got some great information starting to tell you about the kind of cars they'll have and all that. So with Win being my primary sponsor here on Drive to Win, it really is all about gearing up for that and right now talking about what's coming up in the world of Formula One. Now, being a Formula One weekend off, as I said, the gossip raises its head and one of the big things is the intersection of Hollywood and motorsport. Now, there's always been a long-term fascination with Hollywood, for Hollywood with motor racing. We had Steve McQueen with the movie Le Mans back in the early 70s. We had Rush, you know, the James Hunt, Nicky Lauda saga, bringing the human interest, probably for the first time, to the world of entertainment and the big screen. But then you had drive um, Ford versus Ferrari with Le Mans set in the early mid-60s. And that really did bring a focus on the dynamics, the danger, the the investment, the human sacrifice that it takes to be at the top. And of course, with Drive to Survive, it brought the human interest story to Formula One for so many of you. So many of my friends now really get Formula One because of the Netflix, Netflix documentary series. So, so much going on, which is why the news that Ryan Reynolds and a group, an uh, investor-based group here in the States, have put in 200 million euros just over... 200 million euro into a 24% stake in the team, 
which is quite remarkable. Why would they do that? Well, obviously, when it looks at what you can bring with a partner to a Formula One team, you have to be pretty specific about it. Part of that, of course, is bringing a global interest in sports and attracting these major investors and bringing something special to it. Um, When you look at it, um, Redbird's portfolio includes Liverpool Football Club. They also own the third largest stake in the Boston Red Sox with the whole Fenway thing. Uh, They also have a stake in AC Milan and Toulouse. And as the Alpine CEO, CEO, Laurent Rossi said, it brings in a huge amount of cash, but it allows them really to also rely on some of the expertise and the knowledge from uh, the the Redbird portfolio to expand on things like merchandise. It expands on um, licensing deals and really is a huge boost for the team. I would love to like talk to Ryan Reynolds and, and those guys about why they do it, but it brings a profile uh, to the sport. And they did that documentary series on Wrexham Football Club, which Ryan was so involved with, and that blew that up and took it from, you know, a pretty lowly field in the English soccer rankings to something a bit more special. So, you know, who knows? We'll see what happens on there. Uh, give it context. Back in 2002, John Henry bought the Red Sox for $700 million, which now looks like a bargain, right? With it valued over $4.5 billion. Um, at the same time, Alpine has just been valued at $900 million, which is which is remarkable because Formula One was never really treated as... Uh, with with the franchise framework in in mind, which of course is why so many people want to get involved. We talked to Mario Andretti the other day about on on the show on Drive to Win about them bringing trying to bring the Cadillac back Andretti Formula One team to to the field in 26. Well, a new team, uh, a new team to Formula One anyway. British racing team High Tech has just announced that they are going to put in a formal bid to be on the grid in 26. And they have a new investment deal with a Kazaki business billionaire. And they've put in, um, well, it doesn't say, but an awful lot of money. And that team, it is a Silverstone-based team, super successful in Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 2. They know what they're doing. They have that infrastructure based in England around Formula 1 that they know what it would take to get to the grid. But, uh, of course, with... Investors like this billionaire coming in, made his money in copper mining as one of his things. It can only be good for the sport. But it means with a max, I think, of 24 cars on the grid, that's 12 teams the way they have it right now. Uh, as you know, there's been some opposition, and we talked about it on the show, opposition to bringing in uh, new teams because it means they have to split the pot. My opinion is it's probably a good thing. Rising tides lifts all boats. And I'm sure we would have the opportunity to, if you could imagine, have 24 teams on the grid in 26. It would be a fantastic thing. I guess the summary of all this is these guys are big businessmen getting involved in our sport, which means the long-term forecast. And I can only imagine they know a lot more about the economics of motorsport and Formula One and where Liberty Media are taking the sport that you know they know. And uh, if they're investing, it's got to be a long-term play, which is good for you, good for me, and certainly lines things up well here for the Las Vegas Grand Prix at the end of the year. My guest, David Brabham. Uh, He, as I said, we were teammates back at the end of the 80s. Uh, when he arrived, he he was the uh, the new kid on the block. We did well together. He went on to win the Formula 3 Championship 
Um, he then got into Formula One in 1990 and then 1994 with Brabham and then Simtech, a little bit of a roller coaster career there. But boy, David was fast. He had the right attitude. Many times I wish I'd, if we could have had a little bit from each other, maybe we would have both had a bit a better career. But he went on to be one of the top sports car racers in the world. Uh, he won 23 IMSA races, or they were called something else at the time. 23 big major international wins and has won Le Mans. Actually, he won in class and then he won overall with Peugeot. So David, one of the best drivers, a guy that has been working very hard on keeping the Brabham family name out there and certainly doing a good job at that. And see my godson, Sam, is also racing in Australia. It's a great success. The Brabham name is here very much to stay. David, DB, so nice to have you on the show, mate. Hey, JB. How you going, mate? It's, um, yeah, no, thanks very much for having me on board. Good, good. Sorry to keep you up so late, but uh, it's going to be worth it. Um, so listen, you and I go back a long time. Uh, we only see each other. We saw each other at Le Mans just a couple of weeks ago, uh, which was lovely. But tell everyone what you're up to right now, because I, I kicked off introducing you by saying you're keeping the Brabham name alive. Um, and so is Sam out there, obviously racing in Australia. Uh, but what are you up to right now? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, um, obviously, you know, I raced for, for quite a long time and got to the point where I thought I'm going to be too old and too slow for anybody to want me to drive. So it was like, what the hell am I going to do in the future? So, you know, the Brabham name has been around since 1948. And, you know, my father, obviously, three times world champion. Um, and the Formula One history, you know, is 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 right up there with, with some of the greats. So it was about taking an iconic racing name and taking it forward uh, mainly as a brand and uh, getting it out there and getting some activations which were relevant to today because obviously uh, us kids went racing and and Sam and Matthew obviously racing in America, uh, Sam in Australia keeps all that going but, you know, needed something a little bit more significant. So uh, in Australia we have Brabham Automotive um, as one of our partners uh, down there. Uh, out of Adelaide, and we build the Brabham BT62, the ultimate track car, uh, you know, 700 horsepower, uh, under a ton in weight, you know, 1,200 kilos of downforce. So, you know, it breaks lap records everywhere it goes. So that evolved into a race version of that as well as a road version. Um, and then we come up with the BT63, which is the GT2 car, which raced last year in, in Europe. So uh, that's a really cool, exciting project, and it's one that's going to grow into the future and, and take the Brabham name forward. I love it. I love it, and I know how hard you're working. Um, and talking about hard work, you reached Formula 1 very quickly, right? We raced, raced together. You did Formula 3, and that, I couldn't even see you for dust as you, you headed off into the Formula 1 territory. What do you think now you've got uh, your son and your nephew doing it and you, I know you're involved with other young drivers. How hard is it? Give the viewers context to how hard it is to make the grid as a young Formula One driver because we tend to in the States base things off football, baseball, you know, basketball. You, you play college, you get there. That does not exist in racing, right? So put it in context the journey that it takes to make a Formula for Lando or any of one of those guys? Yeah, it's very simple. It's money. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
money and opportunity. I mean, obviously, when we were racing, there was a the opportunities for a, for a driver to get uh, down the road in his career and possibly get to Formula One like I did. There was a lot more opportunities. Uh, the sponsors were around, you know, when I was doing Formula Three here live on BBC, which is you know the biggest channel here in in, in England. Um, and uh, there was loads of uh, you know blue chip companies in there. And and then there was money. There you could you could get free drives and and move along. And that's what happened with me in in British Formula Three after you and I were together in in Vauxhall Lotus with with Camel uh, cigarettes as the main sponsor there, which pretty much got me over to Europe. Mm. Um, and then I won the British F three Championship and the Formula Three World Cup. Signed to do F three thousand and the F three thousand team bought the Brabham team. And next thing I know, I was a Brabham Formula One driver and. Uh, it happened probably three years earlier than I thought it would. Um, but in today's world, you know, the, the escalating costs um, and I'd say the competition in terms of getting the commercial dollar uh, is a lot, lot more competitive uh, in all different sports and areas that uh, where content is, is kind of king and it's taking people off in different directions. Uh, they they weren't there around when I was when I was racing back in those days like like we were so um, it really becomes down to money um, and you'll see most of the, most of the people on the grid are paying for their drives um, and it is very much a, a a money market it's as simple as that crazy in tandem with that though mate the the ladder system of karting and yes the money it requires to get them there. But the sim driving, the the training, the psychiatrists involved in things, arguably you could say that the the guys that dovetail the finance, the financial backing with the ability are really bloody good drivers when they get there. They're very complete, aren't they? Maybe more so. You'd never driven on any of the tracks in Formula One. The first time you saw it was walking no. or running around the track. Now they do thousands yeah. of miles of sim racing. Um Am I right in thinking they're more evolved by the time they get the opportunity? Yeah, I absolutely believe that, yes. I mean, you know, obviously when we were doing it, we didn't have simulators. Um, they, they even didn't even have data when I did our Formula 3. Mm. You know, it was just an old taco rev counter that kind yeah. of went like that and you'd come off the corner and you'd see what RPM you had. You kind of thought, right, well, okay, you know, I went through the corner a bit quicker. Uh, and it was very much see the pants stuff. So uh, in today's world, the driver is a very different driver to when we were doing it. You know, they are so much more prepared to, to be a racing driver. There's so much more technology, so much more science about getting the best out of the driver. Um, it's, it's pretty insane the way that's evolved. So when people do get that opportunity, even if they've got money uh, and maybe not as much talent, you know, they're, they're going to do a better job than perhaps they, they would have done when, when they were racing in an out day. Interesting, right? Uh, to give it context again, when you were in this, either the Brabham or the Simtech, what was the cool thing you had going on that now we'd almost laugh about in terms of technology, right? I mean, now with how advanced these cars are, what was the hot, hot button when you were, when you were doing it, technology-wise? Well, obviously, uh, when I went to Formula One from F3, uh, all of a sudden there was some data. You know, at mm. least you could start looking at some some of the data, nowhere near like it is today, but you had some data to look at, which um, was was very useful. 
Um, when I was with Simtech, you know, we were still, well, in, in at Brabham, we still had the H pattern gearbox. Unbelievable. You know, there was no sequential gearbox or paddle shift. And then when I went to Simtech in 94, I mean, a lot of the teams were having semi-automatic anyway, but Simtech at that time was a new team, uh, didn't have a great deal of money, so technology was pretty pretty limited. And uh, we had a sequential gearbox, and I remember, actually it was at Imola, we tried for the first time having a paddle on the back of the the uh, steering wheel where you we put a, a pressure preload on on the um, on the gear stick, and then when you flicked the button, it made the engine cut, which you know gave you a quick uh, gear change with your foot flat on the throttle. And when that didn't work, I lost a second a lap. So you know that was what we were kind of up against um, in terms of the other competitors. But you know that was our big ticket that that time. So we had a little button to cut the engine. I mean, that's wild compared to now. I've got to ask you, as someone that's driven a Formula One car, I, I drove one in a commercial in Dubai, so I'm not qualified to say this. But, you know, GT cars have evolved to be a lot easier to drive as well, you know, with the air conditioning and the, the but they've always a lot of steering input in a GT car, as you know. When I watch mm. the Formula One drive, the modern driver, A, the amount of time they must spend in the sim to be able to to make those adjustments. I was like, if I could pull off a brake balance change, you know what I mean? And get my hands back on the wheel. Admittedly, I was shifting with a gearbox, right? But so many yeah. adjustments, so many tiers of adjustments. And I, and I can't wait to talk to a Formula One engineer about this, but they seem to have going so fast, yet they have so much time because they're so heavily processed and familiar. But their pressure on the wheel seems to be so light, right? You're watching... You're watching Lewis's or Max's hands, and he's not gripping. He's he's holding it between his fingertips. Yet they're the fastest yeah, cars well, in the world. Yeah, I mean that that's for me is shows the development of the vehicles as they've gone on. Because like in my day, uh, we had one button. You know, he used to talk to the radio, and uh, it was wasn't that complicated. Uh, no power steering. And you had a lot of caster. So the steering was actually quite heavy, particularly on full tanks. Mm. So I remember the first time at Monaco with with full tanks in the race. And, you could, I mean, you could just hardly turn the steering wheel. It was just really and, – and, of course, there was so much kickback from the suspension as well. So uh, now when, you, when you're watching them, they're, they're literally on a Sunday cruise. They're not, but they're, the geometry and the way those uh, Formula 1 cars are set up suspension-wise – uh, you know, from a suspension geometry and a steering geometry and everything, uh, they, they try and make the the cockpit environment as as easy as they can for the for the driver, and they have to because they are very physical cars to drive. Mm. Um, and you're right in terms of so many buttons. I mean, you wouldn't just rock up into a, a Formula One car without any sort of simulator training to go through all the switches while you're driving, so you understood. You didn't have to think about it. You just knew exactly what button everything was. So, um, yeah, I mean, today is a very complicated Formula One car to drive for a driver. But the, as you say, the processes they go through is uh, pretty intense and they need to know their stuff. They know to, they need to know what button they can press or, or dial that they can move to improve the performance of what they're doing or uh, perhaps maybe save the engine a little bit. They need to know exactly what to do. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's and I and I I'm loving talking to you about it because what's happening here in the States is 
you know, Drive to Survive gave everyone a huge audience insight into behind the scenes, you know, Gunter Steiner insane. swearing. Yeah. It's insane. It just opened it up. And for me yeah. too, right? I mean, I'm going, wow, yeah, that was happening. This is happening. What I'm, what I, I think one of the purposes of all these podcasts and talking to people like yourself is trying to also bring a sense of the reality and, and perspective on what it's like to drive these things because they look so easy. And why is Max so much better at the moment? And I will ask you that question with the, with the perspective also of you were a very cerebral driver. You had a lot more intelligence behind the wheel than I did. And, you know, I think I should have been in the sixties. I'd have been super happy just, you know, chasing birds, having a cigarette and going fast. I think that would have been me, right? You know that. Um, that was you, mate. It, oh, it was me. <laughs> yeah, maybe that was the problem. Um, not the smoking <laughs> part, but uh, the birds and the fast part. But the, yeah. how do you think, first of all, how do you think you'd do in today's cars? Oh, good question. It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, you know, we like I said, you know, when I, when I did Formula 3, I mean, it was all very basic and I was racing against Schumacher and Hacken and um, Mika Salo, Alex Zanardi, all, the, all those all guys that ended yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, when you look at that grid, it was pretty astounding mm. uh, grid, to be fair. And when I, when I won Macau and won the World Cup, you know, it, it, that's kind of what launched my, my career. But, um, you know, how I would go... Now, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I'd probably go around in five mile an hour and scare the hell out of myself. But, um, you know, back then you had the confidence that, you know, whatever car you got in, you'd, you'd be fast. So I guess you'd, you'd, you'd have that mentality going into one of these vehicles as long as you obviously you've been, you've been trained to do so. So as a driver, you think, yeah, just throw me the keys and I'll, I'll drive it. And before we get on to the, the, the current drivers um, like Max, is that why, because I've been asked by, by fans of the sport, you know, new fans, so why would they put a Mick Schumacher on the sidelines and then talk about bringing him back? Why would they put a Ricardo? his career is over, if it was other sports, he'd be gone. But now they're talking about him coming back. Is that, DB, because the level of investment in a driver to technologically be aware of the systems is so, so vast that that you need to have, you know, any experience in it is puts you ahead of everybody else. You know what I'm saying? They, they know the systems, which is, is, is worth time, right? Well, they do. I mean, they all know that at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's all about performing. Yeah. It's about the stopwatch. You know, if you're not, if you're not on it, it's it's you're in the public view the world public view but you know the pressure financially for the teams to get points is really intense as you can see on drive to survive the 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 pressure is pretty 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 high and everyone reacts in a certain way um and you know when the car's not great it's 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 hard for the team to to make progress particularly i think with the cost cap now just you know in the old days you could just go testing 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 mm. if you had the budget uh, and fix your problem you know, now, you know, the gaps between the, the cars haven't really closed up uh, a, a lot. And, of course, the, the cost cap sort of stifles some of that development as well. So, you know, having the, the most intelligent of people uh, in your organization in Formula 1 is, is, is even more critical. 
Um, I'd hate to see what the salaries are for some of those guys because, you know, you know, the top, top teams will be paying big bucks for for the best minds to, to be there so that they can shortcut um, any development that they may need that they can't afford because because of the cost cap. That's very insightful. You're right. They, they, they're worth as much because the driver can't get faster half the time because they don't get the time. So they have to they have to do it in the lab, so to speak. So yeah, you- it's not just the driver that has to perform. It's everybody. Yeah. You know, everybody has to perform. And if they don't, you know, the competition in Formula One is, you know, it's 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 pretty, pretty high, isn't it? So um some one individual not pulling their weight is going to be seen pretty quick and, and you're either going to be in or you're out. And we saw that with, you know, some of the drivers you've spoken about with, with Mick Schumacher and uh, Daniel Ricciardo who, who weren't really performing to the level out, you know. And, yes, they could possibly get back in. Um, we'll have to wait and see. I don't know where Daniel might end up, but, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure he'll ever go back to, to Red Bull. I don't think that's ever going to be an option for him. Uh, but uh, where does he go? Who knows? Who knows? What, what do you think about inter-team dynamics? Because we've all had teammates in sports cars. They're sitting alongside you, effectively. You know, you you get out, he gets in. It's it's a very symbiotic relationship. You you sort of marry your differences somewhere in the middle. He's tall, you're short. You know, you 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 like a loose car. They like a pushing car. You you work it out, right? It's but to get the best uh, net effect. But in in Formula One, your teammate that side of the garage is is your teammate, but also your career depends on you beating him. It does, and it? it's as you said, Starwatch. Absolutely. Uh, Two very different scenarios, uh, which is obviously um, Perez and then um, uh, uh, with Aston Martin, you know, with Stroll. Stroll has a very different dynamic in the fact that his dad owns the team, but the heat must be starting to be applied under the seat, wouldn't you say? Because the investments are so large. He, I mean, I think he's done bloody well. Some of the overtaking he did like on Lewis the other day, I'm going, man, that's... He won everything he could on the way up, right? He did very well in karting. Um, it just shows at this level how good the rest are. I mean, the best of the best are, are that good. And then you have Sergio. I mean, uh, then you have Sergio Perez, who's basically mentally not as strong as Max, but his side of the garage know that he has the same equipment. Talk about what that pressure must be like for a driver, because when you go home and you get into bed at night you have dinner and you're with your friends, you know that it's about going fast. And as you say, it's a billion dollar enterprise. So, so what are your thoughts on those two situations? Well, I did live that actually. Uh, when I went to Formula One, um, Stefano Modena, who was quite an experienced driver, he'd been in F1 with Brabham before and, and done quite well. Um, and then he was my teammate. I'd just come from F3. So I had a massive amount of learn. Um, the politics, I'd never really experienced before. Um, half the team wanted me, half the team didn't. And the only way you could prove your worth was actually getting out there and doing the job. Um, and, you know, I never I never out-qualified him. I got very, very close, but I could never out-qualify him. Um, I, I only learned later on because we, we were struggling for money, though well, the team was struggling for money at that time. So I ended up getting his secondhand stuff, which didn't help me, but, you know, that's, he was the number one driver. So, you know, that was my kind of scenario, but the pressure of performing is there at the back of the grid as, as well as at the front. You know, I see, I see Perez 
and, and Max, you know, I think there's a vast difference in talent between the two. Um, uh, I think everyone loves Sergio, but, you know, when it comes to, you know, raw talent, uh, you know, Max is a step ahead, way ahead of, of, of Perez. Uh, and Stroll, yeah, you know what? It's an interesting dynamic because obviously, you know, Daddy owns the team, but at the same time, you know, as you said, he's done performances where you go, yeah, you know what? Hats off. You, you, you're a lot better than I think people probably thought you would be. Um, so, you know, yeah. And then um, with the sort of performances you're seeing from Fernando at the moment, um, and that gulf between the two, you know, really, really is like there for everybody to see. And I'd imagine the pressure uh, um, for for Mister Stroll there is going to be going to be, on two strolls is going to be pretty heavy to yeah. to see what they're going to do about it. Yeah, because to be a serious Formula One team, which they are, have evolved into yeah. the contender of the rest ahead of Ferrari right now. Um, you want those yeah, amazing like, job too. The amazing, amazing job what these guys have done from where they were last year to where they are today. You know, it all looks easy from the outside, but you know what they were able to pull off was a small miracle, really. Yeah. Um, and it and it made everybody else down the pit lane stand up and take notice because mm-hmm. um, you know they 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 made a lot of changes. They got they got it done, and uh, they've got a very competitive package. Yeah. So. When you look at Max and you look at the front of the grid, I said last week on last week's show, it's not like Lewis has forgotten how to drive. You know, he's capable of winning races any weekend he can if the car's there. Um, Talk about that confidence as a driver because you got it in sports cars. Do you remember that era from Penos and then you went to Peugeot? And I mean, you knew you should win given the right equipment, any of the races you entered in. You knew you were as good as anyone in the world. Talk about that mental thing because he has got it right now where you go into every race knowing you should win. Yeah, I think the best way to describe it for me is is you either know or you think you've got confidence. There's a mm. big difference about knowing that when you turn up to the racetrack, you're going to win. You know, there's a, there's a mindset shift. Um, I always remember... I think it was Ron Dennis made a, a, a kind of an odd comment that, you know, if someone thinks they've got confidence, they're not there yet. And it, I think he was absolutely right because mm-hmm. Max just knows. And you've got, uh, you know, Perez who, who's, who's you know, confident, but he, he doesn't turn up at a racetrack knowing that he can win. And when you've made that mental shift, you know, people like Lewis, people like Fernando, they, they, they just kind of have that. And uh, it's not an easy thing to get into where that stays there for a long time. I had it in sports cars. Yes, I, I felt when I jumped in the car, uh, I, I could beat anyone on the day. I just had that that beyond confidence. Where I just knew. I just knew that I was in the best shape. I had a great team around me. Uh, I was highly motivated. I was focused. Um, I'd done all the prep leading up to every race and I was ready and I just knew that I could just get the job done. Mm. Even if we dropped behind during the race, I, I still didn't lose belief that I could still win. Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's knowing and that, that level of belief that these drivers have in Formula One, uh, as well as their talent, makes them slightly untouchable. Yeah, it really does. Before I let you go, I do, I do want to obviously reflect back because you – 
One of the things that's hard to put across as well to a new generation of Formula One fans is the potential danger of our sport. Because the, you know, with the halo, with the accidents we see them have, I mean, you know, barrel rolling over guardrails, get out, you know, shake it off and go. It wasn't that long ago that that was not the world we lived in. And you lived through and were front row seat, unfortunately, to maybe the worst weekend in motorsport, modern motorsport history, when your teammate Roland Ratzenberger died on the Saturday. And then on the Sunday, mm -hmm. Ayrton Senna died. It was, you, no words can describe what that meant for our sport. Um, I'm sure that being that proximity to danger never left you. You, you always respected it. Do you think with the, I'm so glad it's so safe now, but we must never forget it is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous sport. How do you, how do you relate the time you were there with what happened to Ed and what happened to Roland to where we are now? What is, what is the fine knife edge that we're on? Well, I would say the knife edge perhaps is not as, as sharp as it used to be. Um, you know, obviously you're, you're referring to Imola 94, uh, which was a, you know, a, a turning point for motorsport. There's no doubt about it. You know, we lost two drivers, one legend of the sport, Ed and Senna, and a, a young, uh, not young, but, you know, an up-and-coming, you know, driver getting his break in Formula One, uh, tragically taken away from from him. So from that moment, the, thing, the, the whole thing changed in terms of safety. You know, you've got to you've got to take your hats off to to Bernie, Max, uh, and Professor Sid Watkins, who all got together and said this has got to change. Um, you know, obviously Jackie Stewart did it in in my dad's day. He was very vocal about all of that. Um, to me, the danger. I never really thought about it. I respected it, but I never I never felt like I jump in a race car and think about the danger. In some way, it kind of excited me. Um, but I never had many big accidents. You know, I had a few, but I did respect it. Um, and that's why I liked racing in America because, you know, the tracks in Europe changed so much from 1994 that people, I think, take even more risks because they feel safer in their environment. So if they go off track, they can just drive back on. Um, and if they do have an accident, you know, the, 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 the tub and the, the halo and everything is so... Uh, so good in terms of safety, you know. I think people uh, don't perhaps respect the dangers as they did back in back in our day, um, and that's why you see. Do you see a lot of accidents? And you go, oh, you know. I mean, I was sitting in front of uh, the the grandstand, uh, right at the grandstand at the start of the British Grand Prix last year, watching this Alfa Romeo coming towards us and hit the fence right in front of us. And you know, you, when I when I was watching the car come, I could see the the the, the top of the car, the the roll hoop disappear, and the thing collapsed. And that's when I started to to panic about the driver because yeah. that's not that you don't want to see that. No. Um, and uh, obviously, he ended up upside down in the fence right in front of us. But with the with the the sides of the car, in my day, you were dead. But the sides being so high now. Uh, with with the with the halo, it gave that added protection. So when the roll hoop broke, you had another layer. In our day, if the roll hoop broke, it was our head. Yeah. That was it. Um, so you know, I think that really highlighted the advancement of of the safety of the vehicles. And that's not going to stop. They don't sit there and go, "Well, that's all great." You know, this the FIA 
and Formula One are constantly looking and searching for better ways to make the cars safer uh, for the driver and also, you know, the fans watching as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, little insight there, mate. Um, Austria this weekend, it's going to be a good one. That's right, mate. It's going to be a good one. You'll be watching? Yeah, yeah. It'll be... um, I think it'll be uh, a good good one for uh, for one Max. team. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'll be a really good uh, one for Max. Basically, the whole of Holland will be there with their yeah. smoke, you know, their the orange smoke and orange thing, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see. You know, obviously the upgrades that have been coming along. Um, you know, I think Red Bull still have the advantage for sure, but you know, there's there's more and more upgrades from teams, which hopefully will start to close those gaps and make the, the racing a bit more interesting too. Yeah, I hope so too. And you'll be going to the British Grand Prix, I'm sure, in person? I will be, yes. I'm actually there and I'm driving my dad's uh, 1960 cha- Formula 1 championship winning car. Wow. Um, and uh, that's the, the Cooper T53 in a parade of all the Grand Prix cars that I think have won over... A period of time so that'll be a great honor i've never driven that car i've seen it racing historic racing and the owner rang up and he said look could you could do you want to drive it um so yeah that that's uh that's that's really cool um love it so i'm really just, looking forward to just proving really old drivers forward. will always jump we jump at the chance to get in a car regardless right yeah i mean we do uh but especially you know when your father won a world championship in that yeah in that you know, in that in that car, and uh, you know, fifty nine, he won the championship. You know, won it at Sebring, the first ever American Grand Prix. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of great history there, and uh, really looking forward to jumping in it. Perfect, mate. Thanks so much for thanks so much for coming on the show. You can go to bed now, mate. For, uh, thanks for having me. All right, take care, dude. Bye. All right, mate. See you later. Okay, mate. Well, a big thank you to David Brabham, DB, for joining me. As you can tell, old mates. Uh, with uh, a long road to this point in our life. Anyway, great guy. It is time now for this week's race preview sponsored by the Win Las Vegas when we get to talk about the Austrian Grand Prix coming up this weekend. Now, as if Red Bull need any more advantage, it is the Red Bull ring in Austria. The track was built by the Red Bull founder. It is set there in the one of the most beautiful backdrops In the world of Formula One, it's the beautiful green hills. The fans come out by, I mean, the masses. And as DB said, the the Dutch fans will be there setting off their orange smoke grenades, filling the the fan zones with their enthusiasm and a lot of orange smoke. Uh, Never wanted to sit behind that, by the way. But as if they needed more uh, boost going into this weekend's race. Now, for me, the big question is, we know Max unless something pretty traumatic happens or a mechanical failure, which again, much to the chagrin of the opposition, never seems to happen, Max will probably win the race. But the big question is, for me, where will Sergio Perez finish? If he finishes sixth or lower again, it is so detrimental to his place in the team. Contract time, it's the politics of the pit lane, it's the way your your side of the garage reacts He should be second this weekend, and he knows it. He has to be second to put himself into a position that if Max has a problem, he collects the win. There is no way he can let the team down by, in equal equipment, not 
backing up his teammate by being up there on the top, the second st- spot of the podium. That is the race that he has to run. And you can bet your bottom dollar that this entire break off has been him focusing on fitness, psychological approach, and I'm sure talking with his team to say, how do I do it? So Christian Horner and the team are giving him support, but they're acknowledging he is having a rough ride of it. So uh, I'll be interested to see how that comes along this weekend. Of course, this time last year, Ferrari had that really big advantage. Pretty much it was Leclerc's race to win, but they had reliability issues. They had that big fire, but the pace was there. And I'm sure that coming off the back of that Canadian race, if you agree with me, uh, I, I mean, let me know because I think Ferrari is showing the pace that they really should be at this time of the year. The gap has closed and they made some good calls during the race. So I'm hoping that that'll translate to a better result there in uh, in Austria. Of course, with Red Bull just being so far ahead, uh, there is another dynamic this weekend and that is it's time for another sprint race format. And the sprint race format is something they introduced just a couple of years ago, which was pretty contentious. And we have two races. You have qualifying on the Saturday for the Sunday race. You have another qualifying session, uh, Friday. You have another qualifying session on the Saturday morning, which determines the the, the grid uh, for the afternoon race. The race is shorter with a different point structure, but it is very important for the teams to get those extra points. The pressure, and again, something uh, DB uh, referenced earlier is that you have so little time on track now. One of these, when it comes to a sprint race weekend, you have even less time to evolve and develop the car. You go straight basically into a part Fermi situation, which is when you can't touch the car after qualifying. So it's a shortened distance race, about a hundred kilometers. And it's, it provides great entertainment. I'm not sure the drivers love it. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't love it, I don't think, because you you run the risk of damaging your car before you have the main show on the Sunday. And how do you drive at that level holding back? The one thing you don't want to do is have an accident, damage your chassis. But as we've seen, there have been a lot of accidents in the series so far in the run-up in the championship. And it's not out of the question that you'll see someone damage their car on the Saturday, which compromises their run on the Sunday. We talk about upgrades. Well, McLaren are pretty much doing a complete upper arrow improvements to their car. The, the floor isn't being touched, apparently, but all the top body work, all those little diffusers, wings, everything is geared. It's a new concept. And over the next three races, they're going to be implementing that as a total new package. If you're McLaren, you, and you see it with Lando Norris being slightly objectly just uh, depressed at times, it sounds like, you know, we're going to get there, but I don't know when. Uh, I think this is, they uh, sort of, what do you call it? Um, bet the farm on it. And they really want to go into Austria, certainly the British Grand Prix, with the opportunity to get themselves consistently right there at the front, uh, maybe not beating Max, but putting themselves in the position to beat Max should it come up. Mercedes, um, you know, they had qualifying disasters last year with both of them crashing out. But then you had Hamilton getting himself on the podium. And that for me is the relentless brilliance of Lewis Hamilton and George Russell. But Lewis leading the team there on that side of things. Remember, seven-time world champion. The guy knows how to win races. He's just got to get himself with the car 
right up there to challenge in case of a mishap, but another podium would certainly be the way to go. So pressure on drivers increasing. Let's watch on Perez. Let's watch on Stroll, see how they do. Will Alonso manage to pull off yet another podium? It's outstanding. He hasn't not scored points this season. So it's really heading in the right direction. It's going to be a great race, two races. Don't forget to follow along. And I really urge you, obviously, alongside this podcast, listen in on some of the official Formula One podcasts because they, they're there on site. They have so much insight and they'll, they'll make the weekend come alive for you. But we are here at the Win Las Vegas. And every time I walk in the lobby and I see that beautiful Formula One car, I see the McLarens in the showroom next to me, you get the feeling that Las Vegas is in its pre-roll for what's going to happen here in November. And it really is all about the win as the epicenter for Formula One during that week. As I said, we start with the Concorde d'Elegance on the Saturday before, and then as the week ribbon cutting on the Wednesday night, and then the Formula One weekend will kick off. No one has seen the track yet unless you play one of the simulator games. So it's equal playing field for everybody. But how do you get involved? Well, for the Heineken Silver Grand Prix of Las Vegas, go to the, oh, I'll say it correctly here. It is the winlasvegas.com slash experiences slash F1. And you can find all the ways to get here to watch the race. Uh, something for everyone. You have the Grandstand Package, the Paddock Club Package. You have the Wind, wind Grid Club. And if you're one of the lucky elite, you could join the million-dollar package, which would probably put you in the best seat of the house, but not inside a Formula One car, unless you manage to jump in the one in the lobby. So, so much to look forward to. That track is coming together. When I walked out last night to walk across the street, across the strip to go for dinner, I looked and I thought, they are going to be doing 200 miles an hour right where I'm standing. It is breathtaking. I hope to see you here, obviously, and I hope to see you on this show next week when we get to recap what happened in Austria and preview the British Grand Prix. Thanks for watching, everyone. Drive to win and enjoy the race.